Thanks for listening to the podcast from Old Town Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Old Town Church is passionate about making disciples for the glory of God in Old Town and around the world by inviting people to know the gospel, experience biblical community, and live on mission. If you're in the Rock Hill area, we invite you to join us for worship every Sunday. If you're not in our area, we encourage you to find a gospel-believing church near you. We hope this podcast is a blessing to you as we seek to follow Jesus in the grace of his gospel. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Old Town. If we haven't met yet, my name is Trevor. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new with us, we've been studying the book of Philippians. This is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, which was the first church planted in Europe. And he's writing from a prison cell in Rome. He writes this letter to encourage the believers in Philippi. This is a particularly helpful passage for us as we study and consider the ideas of purpose and of suffering. And so let's pray this morning and ask for God's help. Oh, Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. For the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. In the late 1800s, no business matched the financial and political dominance of the railroad. Trains dominated the transportation industry of the U.S., moving people and goods throughout the country. And then a new discovery came along, the car. And incredibly, the leaders of the railroad industry didn't take advantage of their unique position to enable them to participate in this transportation development. In his famous article for the Harvard Business Review, marketing expert Ted Levitt pointed out the reason for this. He wrote, the railroad barons didn't understand what business they were in. They thought they were in the train business, but they were in fact in the transportation business. Time passed them by and as did opportunity. They didn't see what their real purpose was. Well, if you have a business, it's important to know your mission. It's important to know your purpose. The same is true for any organization, even even churches. Right in school, we're taught that every paper has to have a purpose statement or a thesis. It's important to use things for the purpose that they're intended for. If you're a mechanic or a carpenter or a welder, you know that every tool has a purpose in getting the job done. If you're a parent, you know the purpose of crowns is to get a head start on painting the walls. 
despite what your kids might think. When something is fulfilling its purpose or it's doing what it was designed to do. So it's important to understand the purpose of something in order for that thing to work like it's supposed to. And the truth is we're no different. It's important to understand our purpose if we're to live as we should in this life. And this is why the idea of finding your purpose is such a hot topic, right? Even uh, author Simon Sinek hits on this important purpose of, of finding your why, finding your purpose. Because deep down we know purpose and happiness are connected. If you've ever had an extended season with nothing to do, then you've likely experienced this, right? You've gone maybe months looking for a job, uh, that, that long summer break between semesters with nothing to do. Uh, maybe you've watched a retired parent or grandparent struggle being at home all day, not, not feeling like they have a purpose. When we feel purposeless, we often feel joyless. And so we need something to give us purpose and meaning in life because deep down we know that happiness, our joy, is connected to purpose. Now, there are a lot of things that we can look to in order to make us happy, to give us purpose in this life. You can really categorize them into five headings, all of which start with the letter P, because I love you. That's my ministry to you. But we can first look to prosperity, right? We can uh, make work our identity, the need to succeed. We want to be financially secure. We need more money to satisfy us. We're just trying to keep up with the Joneses. We can look to power. We want status. We want that promotion. We want uh, the authority and the, the ability to get things done. Maybe we want our political party to be in charge so that all the problems will be fixed. We want to have an impact, an influence, right? And so we, we dive into social media to, to influence, right? Uh, I read recently that in University of Ireland, you can now get a degree in social media influencing. I read that and I died a little inside. We can look to pleasure, right? We, we live in a culture that tells us that sex is the key to happiness, or we turn to entertainment. We just want to be pacified. We can look to praise, right? We want to feel accepted. We want more likes and more followers. We want people to see how great we are. Or we can look to peace. We just want some peace and quiet, right? And all the parents said, amen. Maybe we're working for the weekend, just trying to get to retirement, and then we'll be happy. Just want, want peace in my home, right? And so I'm reading Marie Kondo, right? Trying to get rid of things that don't spark joy. But the reality is all these things will leave us wanting, won't they? Prosperity is fleeting. Power corrupts. Pleasure is momentary. And praise is never quite enough. And real peace always seems out of reach in a broken world. But here in this passage, you have the Apostle Paul writing about a life without regret. A life of deep fulfillment and purpose. He has true, deep, lasting joy, despite his situation, because he has one overarching purpose in life. And that's our main idea today. Abiding joy comes from a life devoted to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Abiding joy comes from a life devoted to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The most important thing in Paul's life is the, the proclamation of the gospel, the exaltation, the, the praise, the worship, the glory of Jesus. And in this passage, Paul encourages the, the Christians in Philippi and us to experience the joy that comes from a life devoted to exalting Jesus. And in this passage, he gives us four particular encouragements as we consider our purpose in life. Number one, 
he encourages us to exalt Christ in all of your circumstances. Exalt Christ in all of your circumstances. Starting in verse 12, notice that Christ is being proclaimed in Paul's suffering. It's important to understand Paul's circumstances here, right? We've spoken about this over the past couple of weeks. Paul is currently in a Roman prison, surrounded by an elite guard of soldiers. He's about to stand trial, all because he's preached the gospel. And notice here that the gospel Paul preaches is one that gets him arrested, right? It's a scandalous gospel. It's a disruptive gospel. In Paul's day, the gospel of Jesus disrupts numerous things in Roman society, right? It upends the idea that the Roman emperor is some divine figure. And instead, it comes in and declares that a Jewish carpenter from a backwater town is king of the universe. The gospel upends the idea of morality in a culture that's driven by greed and power and lust. It breaks in and says God's kingdom isn't built on greed but generosity. It's not built on power but sacrifice. It's not built on lust but honor. This was scandalous and the Roman authorities weren't going to have any of it. And so Paul's arrested. He's beaten. He's shackled. He's thrown into prison with armed guards. Now remember Philippians is written later in Paul's ministry. He's already endured much more than his current imprisonment by the time he gets this. He gets to this point. Just listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 24. Paul writes, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, this isn't exactly the guy that you're going to use in your joint Christianity marketing campaign. Even before being thrown in a Roman prison, Paul is well acquainted with suffering. And in all of this, Paul says that it's happened to advance the gospel. Look at verse 13. Paul says the gospel has actually become known throughout the whole imperial guard. It's gone where it wouldn't have otherwise gone. This means that even in prison, Paul is still preaching, right? The entire guard knows that Paul is imprisoned for Christ, because of Christ. He sees his circumstances and his suffering as an opportunity for the gospel. And this is the encouragement. Right? All of your circumstances, to see them all as gospel opportunities. Now, this is easy to say when we're not in the midst of suffering, right? It sounds nice. It stitches nicely into a pillow. And certainly we want to acknowledge that suffering is real. There is space in the Christian life to suffer and to grieve and to grieve with one another in our suffering. But Christian, our suffering is also one of the greatest opportunities for the world to see exactly who Jesus is. When suffering comes, and it will come, we have to decide whether God can be trusted or not even in that suffering. And if he can be trusted, if he is still good, then it's worth declaring that. And many times that includes preaching and declaring that truth to our own hearts as we walk through darkness. This reminds me of Job in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the story of Job, 
here's Job, a, a righteous man. He's got a booming business, a big family, a bunch of sheep. And one day Satan comes to God and God points out Job as a model of righteousness. And then Satan accuses Job of only loving and serving God because God blesses him. He says, God only serves you because it pays off for him. He's doing, he does it because you bless him for it. He's just a mercenary. He's only doing it because it pays. But you take it away. You burn it all down. Then he'll curse you. And as the story goes, Job does lose everything. And he finds himself in the midst of suffering. And even his wife tells him to curse God and die. Wife of the year. But what does Job do? He doesn't curse God. He questions God. He argues with God, but he does it to God. Even in his suffering, Job still runs to God. And we see that God was always at work in Job's suffering, especially when he couldn't see it. God's answer to Job is essentially, you can't even see the bigger picture of how I'm using your suffering for my good and perfect plan in your life and in the world. The psalmist does it well in Psalm 77. He recounts God leading the people out of Egypt. And he writes, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, and yet your footprints were unseen. Paul's encouragement here is that God is using his suffering for God's purposes to take the gospel where it wouldn't have gone. In his suffering, in his imprisonment, in his trial, he is still exalting Christ. The gospel is being proclaimed. It's important to note Paul's pastoral tone here. Right? He's explaining this to the Christians in Philippi as an encouragement to them. He wants to strengthen their faith. Even in the face of persecution. Even in the face of trial. Even in the face of possible death. He gives them this word of comfort and hope. And so notice, yes, that Christ is proclaimed in Paul's suffering, but also that Christ is proclaimed through the boldness of the believers. Now certainly, the Roman leaders hoped that arresting Paul would silence him and, and would silence other Christians as well. But the opposite has actually happened. Paul writes that his imprisonment has actually increased their boldness to speak of Christ. Instead of being paralyzed by fear, they're speaking out more. Now, how is this possible? When the guy you're following is thrown in prison and is looking at possible execution, wouldn't that be the time to bow out? Just look at Jesus' own disciples, right? Every one of them ran away in fear when he was arrested. But not these believers. They don't run. They don't shrink back. They don't go silent. They are more bold and more courageous. Why? What do these Christians have that make them more bold? Well, I'd say two things. First, they have the Spirit of God who's opened their eyes to the gospel. The Spirit of God is in them, right? And the promise of Christ, the promises of Christ, which are many, but one of them is just a few verses earlier in verse 6. When Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a hope. When you are tempted to run away or shrink back in the midst of suffering, remember that the Spirit of God is in you and that the God has, has promised to sustain you while he brings his good work to completion. Paul is looking at the gospel advancing in his own situation and through the increased boldness of other Christians, and he's rejoicing. 
He's filled with joy because Christ is exalted. And so let's pray for that kind of boldness that clings to Christ, that exalts Christ in any circumstance. Let's have the heart of the psalmist, right, who wrote, Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It would be easy to dismiss Paul as naive here. This idea of rejoicing even in the midst of suffering can seem really overly simplistic. But I think approaching Paul's perspective with that kind of critique is itself short-sighted. Listen to how one commentator, Gordon Fee, explains Paul's perspective for us. He writes, Paul can write things like this because first, his theology is in good order. He has learned by the grace of God to see everything from the divine perspective. This isn't wishfulness, but deep conviction. That God had worked out his own divine intentions through the death and resurrection of Christ. And that by his spirit, he is carrying them out in the world through the church and therefore through both himself and others. It is not that Paul is too heavenly minded to be in touch with reality or that he sees things through rosy tinted glasses. Rather, he sees everything in light of the bigger picture. And in that bigger picture, fully emblazoned on our screen at Calvary, there is nothing that does not fit even if it means suffering and death on the way to resurrection. Paul has a bigger view of what God is doing. He knows who God is and what God has promised. And in this passage, we see that Paul's faith works itself out in how he lives. His theology determines his biography. And the same is true for us. What we believe will determine how we live. Paul knows that the God who loves him is using his circumstances for the glory of Jesus. It's not wasted, and so Paul keeps praising. And that's why we can keep praising too, no matter what comes. So exalt Christ in all of your circumstances. Number two, exalt Christ in the face of criticism. Verse 15 to the beginning of 18, Paul gives us two categories of people who are preaching Christ here. In one group, there are those preaching Christ out of love. In the other group, there are those preaching Christ with wrong motives, out of envy and rivalry. Now, there are a couple of possibilities for who these people with bad motives might be. One possibility is that these are teachers who are taking advantage of Paul being in prison. Some commentators note these are Potentially people who want Paul's influence and status within the church. And so they're taking advantage of him now being out of the picture. They want the limelight and the notoriety, and and this is their shot now. Another possibility is that these are people who were criticizing Paul for bringing trouble upon the church with his preaching. They blamed Paul for the persecution, and they decided they would step in and do a better job. They think they're really going to stick it to Paul and, and afflict him, as he writes in verse 17. Well, it's likely that Paul's critics here consisted of both. People taking advantage of Paul being in prison and people blaming Paul for the persecution upon the church. But it's also important to understand what this group is preaching. We can infer from Paul that the content of their message wasn't wrong. Their motivation was wrong. It's not that they were teaching a false gospel because Paul definitely addresses false teaching elsewhere. Anytime Paul's addressing false teaching in the church, he comes down hard, calling false teachers things like men of depraved minds and their teaching like gangrene. But he doesn't do that here. 
Presumably, it's because what they were teaching about Christ was true, even though their own motives were wrong. So while their doctrine was right, their motivation was wrong. The gospel was true, but their heart was false. Now, this is an important warning for us. Because it's very possible to do a lot of Christian things while still being far from Christ. Do we do a lot of church and Christian things out of genuine love for Christ or for other reasons? Just like Satan accused Job, right? Do we only serve God because we believe it will pay off for us, that he will bless us, that it will go well for us? Friends, that's the heart of the prosperity gospel. That tells us if we serve God and do good things, then God will owe us. He will bless us as a result. But the true gospel says that we serve God because he has given us something we don't deserve. Mercy. Grace. And so if you're here unsure, just exploring Christianity, it's important to know what we're talking about. Right? If you're going to reject Jesus, at least be sure you're rejecting the real Jesus. Not a prosperity Jesus. Not a Jesus of our own imagination. And so Paul notes there are people preaching Christ out of love and people preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. And ultimately, what does Paul say in verse 18? Basically, who cares? Ultimately, for Paul, it doesn't matter. Verse 18, he says, Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. His highest aim is that Christ is exalted. And even though some are preaching with wrong motives, he is joyful that Jesus is being preached. Notice that Paul isn't concerned about his own influence or his own status being in jeopardy. Some of the teachers want Paul's stage, and Paul's fine with it because he knows the stage is for Christ, not Paul. He's not concerned with building his own kingdom, but the kingdom of Jesus. The important thing for Paul is the message, not the messenger. He's not concerned with the critics. It matters that Christ is exalted, and that gives him joy. In a world that tells us to get the influence and get the status and promote ourselves, let's be like Paul. More concerned about Christ's kingdom than ours, Paul's joy is wrapped up in the exaltation of Christ. And so don't let critics or bad motives discourage you. Exalt Christ. Keep proclaiming the good news in any circumstances, in the face of criticism, And keep being encouraged by the good news. As a Puritan preacher, Richard Sibbs famously wrote, There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And that's good news. No matter what your circumstances might be or what your critics might say, that's worth celebrating. Number three, exalt Christ with courageous endurance. At the end of verse 18, Paul writes that he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed And he adds that he will rejoice because he knows that through their prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for his deliverance. Paul is confident. He is assured of his deliverance. Note that Paul hopes for courage rather than shame so that Christ will be honored. He's trusting that God will give him the courage to endure and to honor Christ all the way to the end of his life. Remember that Paul's writing this toward the end of his ministry. In a few short years, he would write these words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure, his death, has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
His desire, as he writes to the Christians in Philippi, is that he will run this race with faithfulness. And what will help Paul continue all the way? What will help Paul exalt Christ with courageous endurance? Notice the sentence here in verse 19. He says, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's looking at both of these, right? First, he's looking at their prayers. Paul assumes that their prayers will be a means of God's grace to him. He knows that prayer is a powerful way that God uses, that God will use to strengthen his people. Paul knows that the Philippians are praying for him. He's strengthened by their prayers, encouraged by their prayer. He believes that God is going to use their prayers to help him persevere. And he's also looking to the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, the language here is interesting because Paul isn't saying that the Spirit of Christ will give him something to strengthen him. He's not saying that the Spirit, the subject, gives him something else, an object. No, the language here actually puts the Spirit of Christ as the object. And so what does this mean? This means that Paul is strengthened by the Philippians' prayers and the gift of the Spirit of Christ. God supplies Paul with the Spirit. In his great commentary on Philippians, Gordon Fee explains it this way. Paul knows that Christ will be glorified in this life, in his life or death, only as he is filled with the Spirit of Christ himself. In Paul being supplied the Spirit of Christ, Christ will live powerfully through Paul as he stands trial. Now friends, this is so important for us to understand as we live in a life that is marred with suffering and heartache. So often in our circumstances, we ask God to to give us something to help us endure, or maybe more so, more often, to get us out of our suffering. But God usually answers these prayers by giving us the one thing we need most of all, himself. Paul knew that he could exalt Christ with courageous endurance, with the help of their prayers and the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him. Now see what he's talking about here. He's looking to the community of faith and the presence of God. And this is what we need, right? Our Christian faith has lived both horizontally with God's people and vertically with God's Spirit dwelling in us. We need Him and we need each other. And this is what we hold out to everybody, right? Gospel and community. The presence of God and the presence of God's people. And so let's be people who live this out. Let's pray for one another and pray with one another. Let's bring one another before the throne of God and do it knowing that God is using our prayer as a means of encouragement and strength to each other. Christian, the Spirit of God is living in you and will work in you and through you to minister to those around you as we seek to exalt Christ with courageous endurance. Number four, exalt Christ until your faithful conclusion. Just as Paul is confident that Christ will be honored in his life, he is confident that Christ will be honored in his death. Paul rejoices and says in verse 18 that he will rejoice. Why? Because he will be delivered in verse 19. Now how can Paul say that he knows he will be delivered in 19 and then say Christ will be honored by his death in 20? Wouldn't his death in prison be really the opposite of being delivered from his circumstances? Well, not unless Paul is seeing deliverance in a different way. 
If he lives, he'll be justified by the gospel continuing to go forward and people coming to faith in Jesus. And if he dies, he'll be delivered to the presence of Christ. He hopes for courage and an unfaltering faith so that Christ is honored in his life all the way to his death. This is confidence. Paul can rejoice because his one aim is to exalt Christ and he is assured that Christ will be exalted. If you have one goal in life and the God of the universe has promised that that goal will be accomplished, you can rejoice no matter what the world throws at you. This is why all the other things we look to for purpose don't ultimately fulfill us. They will all fail or they will all fade. But the praise of Christ, the glory of Christ, the promise of Christ's return and reign, they won't fail. In Paul's life or his death, he can rest in his assured future. I love the way Eugene Peterson writes this verse in the message paraphrase. Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his prize. Life versus even more life. I can't lose. Amen, we can't lose. May this be our highest aim, that we would exalt Christ all the way to resurrection. And so, my friends, this raises the question, is Jesus your greatest joy, your most valued treasure? Is the exaltation of Christ your greatest purpose in life? The Apostle Paul shows us that if we want true, abiding joy, no matter the circumstances, in the face of criticism, all the way to the end, that kind of joy is wrapped up in a life lived for the exaltation of Christ. And when the exaltation of Christ becomes our greatest purpose, it changes us. It changes the way that we see and approach areas of our life. How can I exalt and honor Jesus in all these different areas, we ask, in my work? in my relationships, in the way that I parent my kids, in the way that I think about politics, in the way that I pursue education, and in my hobbies, entertainment, the way that I spend my time, in the way that I drive. I got something on that one. In how I handle my finances, in the way I spend my time and, and devote my time to other people, in my singleness, in my marriage, in my grief and suffering. Christian, you can be sure that even in your worst circumstances, God is working in you and through you for your good and for his glory. I love the way Charles Spurgeon, the old Baptist preacher, said it. If the devil never roars, the church will never sing. God is not doing much if the devil is not awake and busy. Depend upon it. That a working Christ makes a raging devil. When you hear ill reports, cruel speeches, threats, taunts, and the like... Believe that the Lord is among his people and is working gloriously. So the Apostle Paul encourages us to exalt Christ in our circumstances. In the face of criticism, with courageous endurance. All the way until our final conclusion. Because true abiding joy comes from a life devoted to the exaltation of Christ. For the Christian, our great purpose in life is the praise of Christ. And our great reward in death is the presence of Christ. We can't lose. So let's exalt him until he takes us home.
Praise be to God for his word. Let's pray this morning. Well, Father, we do praise you for your kindness to us, for your love for us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you by, that by your grace you have saved us. And now we can live, we can live lives that are sold out to the exaltation of our King. So we, we pray that you would give us that vision, that you would work that deep into our hearts, that you would give us an abiding, lasting, true, deep joy that comes from a life devoted to praising Christ, to seeking the glory of our King. God, I pray for friends in this room who may not know you. I pray that the gospel would be clear to them. And you would help them see the beauty of Jesus, the goodness of a Savior. God, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We pray that it would do its work in us. Make us more into the image of your Son. For the glory of your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.